church in verse 21, to live is Christ, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And we know uh, Paul says this, he, he believes this because he saw, he saw the supreme worth of Jesus. He understood that to, to know Christ uh, and to be known by Christ, to be forgiven uh, and loved by Christ, and therefore to be a part of Christ's family and share in the future glories with Christ was true gain. It's true gain. See, we can, we can stack up, we can stack up all that we might gain in this life. But if we truly, if we truly see Jesus and the gospel for what it is, uh, we will always find Jesus greater. Which is why Paul talks about Jesus and the gospel so much, right? Just in this letter alone, in, in Philippians, he mentions Christ 37 times. He mentions Jesus 22 times. There's only four chapters, by the way. And he mentions the gospel nine times. Paul wants our lives to be saturated with Jesus and the gospel. He wants us to grow in Christ, to grow in joy because of Christ. And that's why we have this letter. Paul wants us, he encourages us here to center our lives to center our lives on the reality that to live is Christ and to die is gain, to fix our hearts on that truth. He wants that for us. But of course, the question that's begged by that, I kind of left you with last week that we're going to address today is, how do we live in light of that reality? How do we live in light of the reality that to live is Christ and to die is gain? And that's where Paul's going to turn his attention in verses 27 through 30. I've heard it said before that if to live is Christ and to die is gain is the heartbeat of this letter to the Philippians, then this passage that we're going to be studying today is the feet of this letter. Paul has convinced us that Christ is all, that he is supreme, that he is greater gain. And so now in light of that truth, what do we do? What do we do? That's where we're heading today. Um, also, I want you to know that up until this point, or remind you that up until this point, Paul's been talking about his own current situation. But now what we're going to see him do is shift from his call to addressing the Philippians, and then, of course, us uh, directly. So again, he's, he's just unpacked the incomparable worth and supreme value of Jesus Christ And then he's going to continue this thought in verse 27. He says this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So this is really Paul's overarching overarching goal for the Philippians. That if there was one, let's call it a a meta-instruction If there's one um, urgent command or calling in Philippians, it's this. And I want to remind us as well that this message here, this is for uh, the whole church. This isn't just for pastors. This isn't just for, for leaders. This is to all followers of Jesus, all of us. And here's the message, again, to us individually, uh, but also to us collectively Paul says, live in a way, live in a way that is worthy of the gospel. Our call from Jesus, for Jesus, is to live in a way that is worthy of the gospel. I want to pause here just for a minute and focus in on that word worthy, that word worthy. Paul uses this a number of times uh, throughout his epistles or his his letters, like in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Or in Colossians 1, he says this, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Sound familiar? Or in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says this, he says, we charged you, we urged you, we encouraged you, is what he's saying, to do what? To walk in a manner worthy of God. 
And so what does it mean then to walk in a manner that is worthy? Well, uh, let's keep in mind the, the context, okay? It's really important. Context is king when you are studying the scriptures, right? Remember again in verse 21, I've told you like four times already, but I'll tell you a fifth time. Okay, in verse 21, he's told us and the church to live as Christ and to die as gain. He's told us that Christ is all in all. He is the greatest gain. He's told us that Jesus is supremely worthy and immeasurably valuable. And so when he says, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, he's saying, live in such a way that your lives put on display the incomparable and supreme worth of Jesus. Does that make sense? Paul's saying, given the worthiness of Jesus, given the fact that he is so worthy, let your lives put on display. Live in such a way that displays to the world the incomparable worthiness of Jesus. That's what Paul is going for here. He's calling us to, to live in a way where Jesus is found to be as big and as beautiful and as worthy as he really is. And notice as well how, how serious Paul is about this call or this charge. Look at the first word in the verse. I think we can, if we have it back up on the screen, that first word, word in the verse, it says, only, only, which means he's saying, church, if, if you do anything, if you do anything, do this one thing. Whatever happens, nothing should distract you from this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, um, if you look at your Bible, especially if you have a physical copy of God's word, if you have a, a like you version up or something, maybe it's there. But if you have your Bible um, open, you might notice something. You might notice that there's actually a footnote uh, next to the word worthy there in that verse. It says something like this if you go down to the footnote. It says, another way to translate this would be, only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. You might see that there. And the reason for that, the reason for that is because the word choice that Paul, Paul uses here for worthy, it typically described um, a person who was a worthy citizen. That is the context. And this is actually pretty powerful when you understand the context. See, we, we know that Philippi, um, it was unique in, in the church because it was actually a Roman colony. Okay? Philippi, the city of Philippi, it was a Roman colony, which meant that citizens of Philippi, Philippian people, were given the honor and privileges of Roman citizens, right? even though they didn't live in Rome. It's very unique. It meant that their names, actually, were written on the Roman roster, that their citizenship or their legal status was that of a Roman. And so you can imagine, right, amongst the known world, the Philippians took great pride in this, right? They had this higher level status in society as Roman people not living in Rome, right? They got all the benefits, they got the tax breaks. They got the medical insurance. They got the retirement. They could go to the best spas and the guilds and all this stuff, right? You can kind of imagine. And so this is so powerful because what Paul is doing here, by calling them to live their lives as worthy citizens, is subtly reminding them, reminding the church of their dual citizenship. That yes, they are citizens of Rome because they are Philippians. That yes, their names are written on the Roman roster, but they are also citizens of heaven. They're also citizens of the kingdom of God. That because they are in Christ, their names are also written in the book of life, which also comes with a, a certain level of honor, of privilege, and of status. 
So Paul tells them, above all else, as Roman citizens in Philippi, live not as the Romans do, but live as citizens of heaven, displaying the supreme worth of Jesus as you live your lives together. And of course, we know this is our call as well, right? Whether we are citizens of, of Korea or of America, of Canada, China, the Philippines, South Africa, right? Somewhere in Europe, right? Our, our gathering in particular represents a lot of those places around the world, regardless of where you're from. For those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, who have trusted the gospel, we are in Christ, which means that we have dual citizenship as well. And so in light of that, in light of that, Paul tells the Philippians and us to live as citizens of the kingdom within whatever context we are in. To to live in such a way that, again, displays the supreme worth and value of Jesus. So that's Paul's instruction. That's his instruction here. But now, okay, now again we come back to the question, what does it look like to live that way? How do we live as dual citizens? Well, fortunately, uh, in the rest of this section, uh, Paul gives us a few elements on how to make Jesus look supremely valuable uh, among us. He gives us three, actually, and so we're going to go through those together this morning. We're answering the question, or attempting to answer the question, how do we live worthy of the gospel? How do we live worthy of the gospel? And we see first, first from Paul, I think, to do that, we have to stand firm in one spirit with one mind. Stand firm in one spirit with one mind. Continuing in verse 27, Paul tells the church, so whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. There it is. What Paul is doing there is calling the believers to oneness, or you might say he's calling them to unity. And to do that, he says that we need two things happening. For this unity, for this oneness to take place, two things really need to be happening among you. You can see it there. There should be one spirit and one mind. Okay, Two different things. So let's look at those together. Uh, we know that the unity uh, as well, this unity that he's calling them to here, it, it's, it's not like a, hey, can't we just all get along? Like this flippant kind of like, hey, just, you know, let's be happy and get along. That's not it. This is deep unity. This is unity that's rooted in the gospel and the Holy Spirit. And, and we know that because the one spirit that Paul refers to here is, is, is related directly to the Holy Spirit himself. Uh, You see, within the Trinitarian Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we know, uh, but I'll remind you, three persons, one God. God the Father is the architect of salvation. God the Son is the accomplisher of salvation. And God the Holy Spirit is the applier of all the benefits and the effects of salvation. And of course, before salvation... Before we're in Christ, we know that we are outside of God's family. We're outside of the kingdom of God, right? The Bible actually says, it's harsh, but it's true. The Bible actually says that we are children of wrath if we don't belong to Jesus. But at salvation, once we are in Christ, the scriptures tell us that what happens is that the Holy Spirit actually invades our hearts and he regenerates us. That's a theological term. He regenerates us, which just means that he gives us a new heart, actually. He makes us new. He does that so that we then desire to turn from living for ourselves to turn to living for Jesus Christ. And so we can rightly say that in our salvation, the Holy Spirit brings unity about or into our lives. Of course, he does that by bringing about unity with God, but also he does that by bringing about unity with other followers of Jesus Christ. That through the Holy Spirit, we become one in the way that we see God, in the way that we see ourselves, in the way that we see our sin, in the way that we see our world, 
And of course, in the way that we see Jesus and the way that we see the gospel, by the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, we have common purpose and a common identity as God's children. We have a common shared future with God. This is what the Holy Spirit applies to us, to our lives. And so when Paul says, standing firm in one spirit, that's really what he's talking about here. That to have one spirit means to to recognize and to remember what God or what the Holy Spirit has accomplished and done for you. To stand firm in the truth of what God has done and then to live out the unity that the Spirit has created in us. It means that despite our differences, despite our distinctives, it means to know that our uniqueness no longer separates us because in Christ we are one. And then he says, not only standing firm in one spirit, but also standing firm with one mind, with one mind. Uh, Now, that word mind, uh, it's a little confusing in the English because um, it could actually, or it's more properly translated as soul or inner person. And so basically, Paul is talking about here uh, being one in the depths of who we are. It's who we are deep down. That to have one mind uh, is in regards to what we're ultimately about as people, right? Underneath all of our differences, underneath um, all the different things that we're doing in our lives, um, underneath it all, it's one mind about what we ultimately value, what we ultimately hope in, and where ultimate meaning and purpose and worth are, frown, are, are found. And, and what is that unity, or what does this unity practically look like? Right? We've kind of talked about some abstract things. It's actually pretty simple. It means getting, getting really good as a person, getting really good at handing out grace and patience, handing out mercy and gentleness towards one another. It means at times... It's actually oftentimes, usually, putting aside personal preferences. It means being wise and discerning in how to handle sin among us. It means prioritizing God transforming our minds and our hearts before we demand others to change. It means recognizing that we're all still a work in progress. It means that we are prioritizing gathering together as the body of Christ, as the church, for the sake of unity— but also because we realize that we need each other more than we often think that we do. So Paul says, stand firm, stand firm in one spirit with one mind, because when you do, when you do that, church, you make Jesus look supremely worthy. You prove, you prove that Christ is all. You show that Jesus is good and beautiful And that to live is Christ. You show that. I mean, even in this season, think about it, right? Just think about what we show our families, what we show our friends, what we show our coworkers. Even just by the simple reality that you come to this place or you watch online and you're devoted to that every single week. right? Even even if you're a person, this is is not good, by the way, but if you're a person who, who regularly attends and you go every week, you're, you're in the like, top percent of churchgoers. The average churchgoer in the West attends a gathering every two to, th- two to three times a month. 2.5 it is, something like that. And that's what we call a regular church attender. That's what we label as a disciple, a follower of Jesus now. It's actually pretty pathetic. So, so imagine like, if you're so devoted that like, your schedule actually revolved around meeting together. Like, that's a fixed piece of your calendar. We... Like, what does that say to your, to your kids? What does that say to your, your siblings? What does that say to your family members over holidays or work trips that you're like, no, I can't, I prioritize this. I'm in this missional family and I prioritize this. That, oh, like my work might go down 2% because I'm prioritizing that. Right? What does that look like? You're probably going to have some conversations, even from your family. You're one of those radicals. You go, you go 50 times a week. You can take a week vacation. But you go 50 times a year, you go to church or whatever it is. (laughs) You're a radical at that point. But I think it's it's an opportunity for us to say, 
I'm devoted to gathering together. I'm devoted to this unity. I'm devoted to being in discipleship because I believe that Jesus is supremely worthy. He's worth it. That he's beautiful. He's good. And that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I want to be with other people who agree. <laughs> and so let me ask you this this morning. Um, first of all, is there anyone in your life that you need to seek out for the purpose of unity? Uh, particularly within our, our local church context. Is there anyone that you need to seek out? Talk to? Or are there preferences? Are there preferences that you need to surrender for the sake of oneness? Uh, the way that you interact with others, the, the unity you share with other believers should, should make Jesus look as valuable as he is. Let's look at the next one, number two. Number two, strive together for the gospel. Strive together for the gospel. How do we live worthy of the gospel? We strive together for the gospel. Paul says at the end of verse 27, here it is, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That word strive there, um, it's a good one. Um, It comes from the word athleo, which is actually where we get the, uh, the word or the term athlete from. And so it refers to the effort the discipline, and the endurance of athletic competition. And so with that, Paul is saying this. Another way to walk worthy of the gospel is to go out and spread the gospel, share the gospel with the discipline and endurance of an athlete. And again, not just individually, right? We do this together. We strive together to make Jesus known in our neighborhoods and among the nations. Right now, I know, I know uh, that any time effort is brought into the Christian equation in the church settings, right, there's a few of us, or maybe some of us, or maybe more than, more than little, tend to get a little squirmish in our hearts. Like, there's something I have to do, right? But it's important to remember, it's really important to remember that the Christian life does require effort on your part. That even though we are saved by grace, there is work for you and I to do. I think one Christian writer uh, said it best. It's actually, his name is Dallas Willard, if you're not familiar with him. But he says it this way. He says, grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. It's so strong. Grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. And so Paul says, strive side by side for the spread of the gospel. He's saying, put effort there. Put strong effort there. Know that you, as the church, possess the greatest news that there has ever been or ever will be. The news that forgiveness of sin and access to God is freely available because of the cost Jesus paid on the cross. It's the most precious and valuable news you could ever fathom or imagine. It's news that's always relevant. It it belongs on the top of your Facebook news feed and the top of your Instagram feed. Every time you open it, it should be there. The gospel should be there. It's the most relevant news there is. And listen, listen. A worthy gospel, a worthy gospel calls for a worthy effort. A worthy gospel calls for a worthy effort. That's what Paul is getting at here. And so I just want us to, I just want to encourage us today. I guess it's still this morning. I want to encourage us to think through some fresh ways that we can go about spreading the gospel. Especially in this season that we're in. I think we really need to take the time to consider this. But let me, let me first say this as well. Let me first say this as well. Um, if, if I don't, or if you don't feel, even right now, you're sitting there and you're thinking about, oh, evangelism, sharing the gospel. If you don't right now in your heart, if you don't feel a burden for the lost, uh, if, you, if you don't feel a burden for people who don't know Jesus, uh, I encourage you to just uh, begin praying that Jesus would give you a burden Uh, Pray that he would give you eyes to see opportunities that are all around you. And as you do that, you might be surprised to see 
how many opportunities there actually are around you that you just never had eyes to previously see. Uh, but going, going back, again, what can you do? What can you do? Well, there's a, so many things. I'll tell you a few. First, um, you can just simply start by practicing hospitality in your life. Invite people over to your house under the restrictions, of course. I should say that to the camera if your government you're watching. Under the restrictions, okay, invite people into your life and your house. Right now, I think it's like four to six people, depending on how many of you got the Fauci shot. Right? Invite people over. Okay? Or maybe it's as simple as uh, considering your own hobbies and inviting people into that. Right? Maybe you love to bike. Maybe you like to hike. Uh, maybe you're, like, you're really into escape rooms or something. You maybe, uh, some of you, your hobby is searching for good coffee shops. Right? Whatever it might be, what would it look like now and then? Sure, that might be your time with the Lord, away from the Lord. But what would it look like to sacrifice some of that time to invite people into that time? Listen, I think a really common mistake in my ministry experience, talking with people, uh, reading about church strategy, listening to people being burned out from the church. This is so common. I think a common mistake in regards to evangelism, sharing the gospel, is believing that what we have to do or should do, what's right to do, is gather a group of, get, of people together, like I all call you to the church building on a Friday night, and then we go out with pamphlets and things and go do evangelism with speakerphones and pickets and things. That's doing evangelism. And hey, let me just say this. There's a time and place for that sort of evangelism. Just, it's like cold call evangelism. We're just going to go out, trust the Holy Spirit to lead us uh, two people in places and share the gospel there, right? Just read. Again, this, this letter to the Philippians started with the Apostle Paul doing that by the river, right? So let's not forsake that type of evangelism. It has its place. But, but evangelism can also look like doing what you're already doing just in more intentional and meaningful ways. It's more relational evangelism. And do you know, um, last, a couple years ago, um, the Barna, who's a huge Christian research company, you know what they found? They found that uh, of people who had joined the church for the very first, uh, joined a church for the very first time, this is in America, um, joined a church for the very first time, they polled them and asked them, how did you get there? How did you get to this church? Like, if you're not an unbeliever or you're, you, you're burned by the church, so that means you're de-churched. Maybe you consider yourself a Christian, but you're angry with the church. They pulled those people, not Christians. They pulled non-believers and people who were kind of on the edge. How did you get to the church that you're at? You know what they found? You know what they found? 85% of them said, I came because somebody in that gathering either invited me or I already had a relationship with someone in the gathering, and so then I went. 85%. So if that's even close to being the case, you know what that means? You better get really good at inviting people into your life, building relationships with people, and inviting them here. <laughs> inviting them into your missional families. Otherwise, it's good. Christians will come. You know, that happens overseas. You know, we're in Seoul. That's our context. People get on planes. They already love Jesus. They come. They find a place here for however long they're in Korea. That's amazing. They serve. They give. They help disciple. And then they stay for a long time or some stay for a short time. And we send them off with the gospel to go be a missionary in the next place. That's amazing. But if we're going to impact our city long term, if we're going to impact the neighborhood of Haebongchon, if we're going to do anything with Itaewon, in soul in general, it's going to take building relationship with people who are currently not here, who currently don't belong. So what does that look like for you? Maybe you just commit once a week to grabbing lunch with a coworker who doesn't know Jesus or who, who, who's not really, who's disenfranchised with the church. Uh, maybe you just start by uh, being a regular. I think in Korea they call it like a buddy customer. Right? That's what they call it. Become a buddy customer at the places where you eat, where you shop, where you drink coffee. Start to learn the names of the workers. Start to learn the names of the baristas in your area. Listen to their stories. 
Uh, Just be real. Naturally build relationships with those people and then share the gospel when you have the opportunity. It's actually not that hard, I promise you. It's not that hard to do. And then on top of that, in our city, um, know this as well, there are countless ministries for the homeless, single moms, orphans. Right? We have connections to all of those ministries here at Freedom Village. You can coach a sport, uh, maybe in your you know, local, in your school, or um, you know, maybe it's just a, a local team here. Like I do that. It's awesome. I coach basketball. Uh, you can just be someone who sits on the sidelines of a sporting event and talk to the parents who are there. You can't imagine how effective that can be, is to be there. We're also, we're starting up connections again with a, with a specific college ministry. Um, we're also in the process right now, we're partnering with a, a ministry for middle uh, and high schoolers called Young Life. Um, uh, Pastor Levi, he's building that connection. We're going to be partnering with them. Right? There's a lot of opportunities in our city. Maybe you just start to start a language exchange in your neighborhood. I don't know. <laughs> Even though you speak both languages. Like, I'll pretend I don't know the one language. I don't know. Uh, it could be a lot of things. But, but what I do know is that there is nothing. And, and those of you who have gone through this journey or helped someone along this journey, you know this. You'll nod your head. What I do know is there is nothing as encouraging, there's nothing actually as addicting as seeing someone come to trust Christ and experiencing the tra- that transformation that takes place over time. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. So commit to being part of this. I mean, just imagine with me, just for a moment, imagine. Imagine what our neighborhoods would look like if we were all doing this. Not most of us. What if every single one of us was doing this? Imagine if each one of us had even like three people, just three, that we were intentionally pursuing, loving, answering questions for, serving for the glory of Jesus. Just in our neighborhood, that would be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people being actively pursued for the cause of Christ. And and I want us to think of this as well. I was thinking about this actually last night, so I added this last night. Think of this as well. Because I think some of the response now, especially in our season, is like, you don't understand how hard life is right now. Like, you want me to go build more relationships and go share the gospel with everything I got going on? Well, listen, if you're struggling right now, like COVID is hard, you feel depressed or anxious, maybe you feel isolated, everything's causing, this whole season has caused a lot of stress and anxiety for you, first of all, join the club, I'm with you. But listen, this is important for me to say, listen, that might be true of you, but you actually know hope. You know joy. You know Jesus. And so just imagine right now those in your life or around your city who don't. How are they making it through this season? If we're having a hard time, imagine how they're getting through this. I have no idea. There's a reason that our counseling centers in Korea, wherever you are, they are full you can't get an appointment. People psychologically are gone in our city. Suicide rates up. Relationships broken. They're all up. How are they making it through? So I was just thinking to myself, you know, in, in my lifetime, has there ever been a better time to share the gospel than right now? I don't think so. We have the answer. We have the hope. So even if you're struggling, share that struggle. Hey, look, I'm right with you. It is hard. I am lonely. I am isolated. I feel depressed. I feel anxious. But thank God. Thank God I have eternity to look forward to. So why else are we here? You have the answer. So think about that right now. Who could... Who could those people be for you? Think of three. And if, and if that's too much, who's your one? Just one person. 
Not, not calling you here to a project. Don't see them as a project, but as a, as a human being created in the image of God that you could genuinely pursue and love in this season with the good news of Jesus Christ. Listen, we got to get this. If you are a follower of Jesus today, that means you are a carrier of the gospel. You are an ambassador of the gospel. You go around and represent Jesus, which means you should be talking about Jesus. But also it means that you're not alone. Thank God. We are not alone. Remember, Paul is writing to us collectively here that we are to do this side by side together. And so I'll ask this of us all just very practically today. Who are you? Who are you striving side by side with for the faith of the gospel? Again, it goes back to these gospel partnerships. Who are you striving side by side with for the faith of the gospel? And then along with that, again, who are you reaching out to with your life? Who are you reaching out to with your life? Paul says that we are to walk worthy of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is a worthy message. So let's strive to, to spread our faith with discipline and endurance like an athlete. You, you've seen athletes train, right? If any of you have watched, some of you are like, I've never even watched a sport. You can imagine with me for a minute. You've seen these Olympians, triathletes. You know, I just read recently, you know, LeBron James, if you never know who that is, you should. King James, they call him, basketball player, okay? Do you know that every year, every year, he roughly spends $1.2 million just on his body? That's not including his diet. Personal chef. He's got two in his house. 1.2, because what does he say? He actually says, he actually said, I'm chasing the goat, greatest of all time. He's chasing Michael Jordan. $1.2 million a year on his body. Never takes a day off. Doesn't matter if it's Christmas. One, that, much, that much devotion, dedication, discipline, endurance to be the best. Paul says, like an athlete, like an athlete, strive, strive towards the faith. Strive towards the things in the gospel. Wake up thinking about the gospel. Pray, God, today, give me eyes to see who could I share the good news with today? What if your life was devoted like an athlete to doing this? I just can't imagine how much change there'd be. I'd be calling the government. We got a real issue with this 10% thing, right? We got a real issue. You got to help us out here. We are planting churches all over the city. I believe that we can do that. I believe God's calling us to that. It's right here in the scriptures. So let's do this. Let's do this side by side. And then finally, finally, how do we live worthy of the gospel? Some of you are hoping I just stop right there, right? You're ready to go out, bust the, bust the doors down, and go share the gospel with somebody. Others of you want me to stop because you're just like too convicted and sad. Don't be, don't be, Okay. Go back to the Lord, confess. Lord, I need to share the gospel more. I need to see you more. Turn and go share, okay? Move on. Here we go. Finally, how do we live worthy of the gospel? Be fearless. Be fearless amidst opposition. Be fearless amidst opposition. You could say trials there as well. Trials, difficulties, challenging. But I think opposition is a more appropriate word. It's in the text. In the beginning of verse 28, Paul says this, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Okay? You can read this all in its context if you have a Bible in front of you. Do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. So here Paul is talking about, he's talking about being fearlessly united amidst opposition. And it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting word choice here because he is essentially saying, like, if, I, if you're going to do, like, a modern translation, Paul would be saying, don't freak out. That's actually what it is. He's talking about, like, a stampede of horses that are startled. That's the word he uses there. Don't freak out. Don't panic. Don't lose it, in other words. Don't lose control. Don't lose your mind when you face opposition. And for sure, you know, uh, we're, we're not in a cultural context or a cultural moment right now 
where our lives are at stake due to our faith in Jesus, like in other parts of the world. But at the same time, we know like there is still opposition, right? There is absolutely, and I won't list them all, but there's still certainly some anti-gospel things in our culture. Right? There, are, there, there is opposition to the gospel and to the church um, in our city. And I'm not making a political statement, but even small things, like for example, you know, even our, the current government, some of you don't get uncomfortable. Like right now, it, they, they think it's more important um, or more essential for you to go to CGV and watch the new Marvel movie than it is for you to be here. That's just the reality. That's just the reality. Two-thirds of those seats are open. 10% of, the, 10% of the, these seats are open. But what does that tell you? Is there a little bit of opposition to the church and to the gospel? I think so. I don't want to over-spiritualize or under-spiritualize anything, but we've got to at least think about this. Paul says, though, when opposition comes, whatever form it comes in, maybe it's, it's ridicule at best, but it's being harmed at worst. When that happens, Paul says, don't be frightened. Don't shudder. Don't be in fear. And why? Well, he goes on to tell us, he says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it's been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Now, there's a lot going on there, but I think we can simplify this up uh, really nicely. What Paul is getting at here, what he's ultimately saying here, is that both our faith and our suffering is a gift from God. That's actually what Paul is telling us here. He's saying, church, listen, church, be united and fearless because your faith and suffering are gifts from God. And in that, when we do that, when we do not fear, he says that's a sign to those who do not believe. And why? Why? Why is our fearless unity in opposition a sign to those who do not believe? Well, because it's, it's because the supreme worth and, and, and truth of Jesus in those moments is displayed. That when, when we are, are, are suffering fearlessly, it puts on display the worth of Jesus, that he's worth this suffering. And I think this makes sense, doesn't it? Like seeing Christians, seeing Christians fearlessly united in opposition is both, it's both convicting and I believe it's compelling. It's convicting and compelling. It's convicting because most non-believers don't believe anything this strongly, do they? No, not to risk their life for. Right? Particularly the point, again, of suffering. I mean, think about this. It's an appropriate time, actually, season. We're going through this and talking about this. I think about what's going on in Afghanistan right now. And if you're not aware of what, what I'm just by saying, think about what's going on in Afghanistan, you're like, what's going on in Afghanistan? You've got to read the news, okay? It's important to, what's, to know what's going on in our world. But think about what's going on in Afghanistan right now. You know what's not being reported heavily is what's going on with the underground church there. It's reported somewhere uh, that Afghanistan has the second or third, they can't measure exactly, but somewhere top five fastest growing churches in the world. And what the, what the, what the news isn't saying right now is that actually, as of a couple of days ago, um, inside people have shared that intense persecution against the underground church has begun and there's a lot more coming. But you know what? You know what? Um, one of the leaders of the church, the underground church, uh, he wrote uh, a secret message. It got out. He wrote, actually, specifically to one of the big American missionary organizations. He wrote a letter. And you know what his message was? I don't even know if I could read it. It's tough. <laughs> he says this. Short, simple, at the end. He says, We know... We know that we are going to die. But please, don't pray that we don't die. Pray that we would die quickly and without fear. 
Think about the testimony and message this sends to those who are persecuting them. The ones who are, who are killing them. I guarantee you, those who are even killing them will at least, at the very least, because outwardly they can't be expressive, but at least inwardly, I'm sure the Holy Spirit will at least force a few of them to ask, what in the world is leading them to this? Gun to their head, knife to their throat, taking their, their wives or their children, and they stand there, fearless. What leads them to this? It's convicting, isn't it? But also, seeing Christians fearlessly united in opposition, it's compelling. It's compelling. It's compelling because absolute truth in a world that doesn't believe in any sort of truth actually provides hope that there's purpose and meaning to our lives. That when we live this way, fearless for the gospel, it's telling the world that, again, Jesus actually matters. That Jesus is supremely valuable and that a decision about who he is must be made. Live your life that way. Force people to ask, who is Jesus? Who is he? Bring people to the point where they cannot acknowledge him as he's just a good person. Go to teacher. Don't live your life where people would think, oh, you know, he seems like a good teacher. Maybe I'll learn more about that. No, bring them to a place where they either think you're a radical lunatic or Jesus is Lord, C.S. Lewis. Bring them to that place. Listen to what N.T. Wright says about this. N.T. Wright, he's a pastor, scholar, uh, author, focusing specifically on the New Testament, typically, uh, in Europe, England. He says this, being fearlessly united amidst suffering functions as a sign to the Christians that they are already belong to the coming king and to their opponents that a new world is beginning in which the threats of the old one don't work anymore. Amen. Paul says, you want your life to be worthy of the gospel. Live a bold and fearless life for Jesus, to whatever capacity he's calling you to do that. For some, Jesus might, might, he might actually, he might do this for some of us. He might actually ask you to sell everything that you have, to get on a plane, to go preach the gospel, to go plant churches in places where the gospel is not known. Live fearlessly and boldly for Jesus in that He might ask you to, simply while you're here in Korea, he might ask you to pass up a job opportunity or to pass up a promotion because you insist on doing the right thing the right way. Be bold. Be fearless for Jesus. Being fearless for the gospel can look like a lot of different things. But we can only do this. We can only be fearless when we come to the place. Again, when we come to the place of seeing, of seeing and truly believing that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Listen, it's easy to assume. We do this, right? It's so easy to assume that our suffering in life points to God's absence in our life. So easy to assume that, that that our suffering in life points to God's absence in our life. But this is so important For Paul here, he says, suffering actually points to his presence in your life. It's a gift given to you. It shows that if you fearlessly get through it, that you belong to him. And it displays the gospel to the world, which is the purpose and mission for why you're here in the first place. It's a gift. That's not to say, again, it's easy to stand firm. It's It's not. It's not easy. It's not easy to suffer well. To see suffering as a gift. Right? We need to continually, continually pray, be with other believers, have them praying alongside of you, and ask for God's help. Ask, ask to be filled with hope. But by his grace, his grace alone, we can do this. We can walk in a way that is worthy of the gospel. We can be fearless amidst opposition. 
Well, I'll I'll land the plane here uh, today. Uh, Consider this. Consider this. Paul's call, call here to living a life that's worthy of the gospel, it also means that it's possible to live a life that is unworthy of the gospel, doesn't it? It means that we can live a life that makes Jesus seem not all that special. That we can actually live a life that that makes Jesus seem worthless to us, even as followers of Jesus. And what would that look like? What would that look like? Well, it would look like uh, being broken or, or not unified with other believers. That's what an unworthy life for the gospel would look like. It would look like not striving to spread the gospel. It would look like not standing firm. It would look like choosing to live for this world. It would look like continually being caught up in a state of fear and anxiety. That's a life that is unworthy of the gospel, a life that doesn't display Jesus as supremely valuable in your life. But if you want to live a life worthy of the gospel, what does that look like? Again, it's simple. It all begins by seeing Jesus as gain. By by knowing that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Start there. And then once you do, it looks like choosing to walk in love and patience and grace with one another. It looks like choosing to be in one spirit and one mind for Jesus' sake. It looks like striving to make Jesus known side by side in our neighborhoods and among the nations. It looks like standing fearlessly united with courage against all opposition for Jesus' kingdom and his glory. This is who God is calling us to be. This is what God is calling us to be like, calling us to do. So we'll end today with just a simple question. How are you doing with all this? Honestly and sincerely, honestly and sincerely, have you found Jesus to be worth living for and worth dying for? In light of all we talked about today, can you say, can you stand firm today and say, I'm living a life worthy of the gospel. It's the aim of my life. It's the direction of my life. Are you fighting for unity? Are you striving to share the gospel again? Are you bold and courageous amidst trials and troubles? Jesus is supremely worthy. Listen, Jesus is supremely worthy. The message of the gospel is a worthy message. So let's choose to live our lives worthy of that Jesus and worthy of his gospel. Amen? Let's pray together.